welcome again to Victory Faith. We are so excited to be here today. We have a special, special, special guest speaker today. Um, Pastor Roger Welty founded this church in 1989, and uh, we believe that the way a church starts, the way God places the DNA in a church is the way that we should continue to look after that and ask God, is this something that we want to continue to do? Something that they've been strong with the entire time was worship, and we believe that we wanted to continue that on. And there are several things that they've done, the bus ministry that was started early on, and uh, we haven't talked with them a whole lot, but I met Pastor Roger last year, and it was a great time and just an amazing experience for me. And so we are so excited to have them here today, Pastor Roger and Laurel, all the way up from Dallas City now, Illinois. <laughs> so come on up, Pastor Roger. We're so glad to have you here. Would you guys give it up for Pastor Roger? Thank you. Praise the Lord. Well, praise God. It's good to see everyone. Although it's a little bit dark, I can't quite make out everybody. That's okay. Uh, you can see me. <laughs> I was about to say, that's what counts. <laughs> it's actually not. I'm going to speak to you today. I want you to listen carefully to what God says in your heart to you while I'm talking. People used to hear me preach, and I knew they took notes on what I said. More important notes to take are what the Holy Spirit speaks to you about you, your life, while some sermon is being delivered, because that's why God brought you for what he wants to say to you specifically. And so anyway, praise God. I want to minister a message this morning that's entitled, Sharpening Your Walk in the Spirit. He talked about how important the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is all the time trying to get our attention, lead us, guide us, Keep us aware of his presence. He's that ever-present help. He's a counselor and a comforter, and he brings us the truth in the midst of a world full of lies and distortions, misrepresentations about God. The world talks to you about you and misses it most of the time. If you could just spend 10 minutes with your father discussing you with him, now, you can, of course, in prayer and all that, but I mean, if he was, if you were bodily before his throne and he was talking to you about you, I've, I know a couple people that have had the experience of a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus, a face-to-face -face encounter. One man I know had a face-to-face -face encounter with God on his throne, although he couldn't make him out from his hands up. It was kind of obscured, but uh, he actually was in his bed in... Colchester, Illinois, and in a moment in the middle of the night, found himself standing on a sea of glass before the throne of God. How would you like to have that experience? I kind of would, although it'd be terrifying. But anyway, uh, what struck him, and it's what, what has struck so many people that have had profound experience and encounter with God, is God's love toward them was so pure and unpolluted, and he, God is in a, a double mind. He doesn't love us and then also know about the downside of us. And in, He understands us, why we do what we do, who we really are, our history, what brought us to this point, and what he's called to do forward. God talks to his friend. He talks to his dear child, and 
all of his dear children that have that kind of an encounter with, with God or with Jesus, they all walk away going, I just couldn't believe the intensity of his love. Because when they walk through their everyday life down on this sin-stained, demon-infested world we live in, a lot of what goes through their thoughts about themselves is negative. And it's not negative because they want it to be negative. It's negative because they're living in a very unjust and polluted in spiritual environment that has a profound impact on the human environment. People are fighting devils every day. Some know they are. Others are unaware of the influence that the prince of darkness has on their thought life and their decisions and their health and everything, every other way. The thief truly does come to rob, steal, kill, kill and destroy and lie to people. And we live in that environment all our lives and we almost get used to it. You're going to step into heaven one day and you're going to, it's going to stun you how clear you can think. There's nothing that, that lies up, up in the city of God. There's, there's no devils. There, there, there's no conflict in the spirit. It's just, the Bible says in Hebrews, it's just a multitude of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. And it's a beautiful city. It's a clear atmosphere. There's singing. There's worship. Streets of gold. That thing really exists. And when you get there, it's going to stun you how clear you can think. Right now, there is so much, both natural and spiritual, that runs interference in your everyday train of thought. And it's the human experience down here on planet Earth. But one day, you'll go beyond that. And, and when you're in the presence of God, in the city of God, you will be stunned at what a joy just thinking is. It's no longer a struggle no longer a need to press in and press past all the negativity to, to enjoy God. Just enjoying God is all there is. Enjoying one another is all there is. Nothing polluting it. Nothing negative intermingled with it that you have to fight through. You don't have to concentrate on loving people. Love is just what you do. just flows out of you, flows out of them toward you. Oh, you're going to love it. There isn't going to be anything about being there that you're going to hate. There isn't going to be anything about Jesus you don't like. That's all coming. Meanwhile, down on planet Earth, the Holy Spirit is trying to bring as much of the kingdom into our experience as possible while we're yet in this body of flesh walking on this earth. And he's here to help us because we need it. We need it desperately. The Holy Spirit is always trying to bring us out of anything that runs interference in our experience with God. Our love for one another, our love for ourselves, always trying to bring us out of that. It's important that we be responsive to his intervention and help, which means we've got to recognize it. I want to talk today about as you walk through your everyday life, hitting the pause button and really thinking about what you're thinking about. Slowing down, especially at the points that are emotionally charged and difficult. Those are the times when the Spirit especially wants to be your help be your counselor. And sometimes we just get so charged emotionally that, that, that we want to charge ahead and for, for some natural anesthetic in our lives. Some people run to alcohol and immorality. Other people just overeat. Uh, and, uh, people do all kinds of things, trying to just get through the next day and medicate their turmoil. And the Holy Spirit is there with help all the time. But we've got to pause, recognize him, and give him a little room to work. And so 
one of the personal struggles I've had in my life, and it's been my whole Christian experience, is my mind's compulsion to fill in blanks, to not have certain information, then plug in what I think is a reasonable scenario. And based on some of the things I plug in, I feel emotions. All of your emotions are a combination of whatever it is that's got your attention and what you know about it. Some people drive by an abortion clinic and they think it's a medical clinic. It helps women that don't want to have a baby. It's no, to them, it's no different than going to the dentist to get a tooth pulled. Other people drive by and see an abortion clinic and they're deeply moved, vexed, grieved, heartbroken. They feel strong emotions, all based on what they know about that, what they know about the will of God and they know about what happens there. Other people have no idea about the will of God and what happens there and they feel entirely different things. You go to a funeral, and you may sit there, a believer, if, if you are a believer, and you know that, you know, heaven is real. Jesus died for us. Whoever passed away, if they knew the Lord, they're happier than they've ever been in their life. And I, you can just imagine their joy. And you know it's not final. If they're with the Lord, they're coming back. You're going to see them again. There's going to be a very real reunion. You haven't lost anything. You've just postponed the seeing of them face-to-face -face until a later date, but you haven't lost them. People that don't know what happens at death, they wonder if they'll ever see them again. They wonder if there's anything after the grave, after you take your last breath. They, they, they look at the subject of death with great dread. There was a man, Maurice Rawlings. Maurice Rawlings was a physician, a man of science, and he didn't go in for any superstitions. He was just a man of science, black and white, sterile science. And he became a, a heart doctor. Then he went to work as a trauma doctor and became somebody that resuscitated people brought in on ambulances that their heart had stopped or was about to stop. And he became that guy that meets you at the emergency room, Maurice Rawlings at best was an agnostic. If there's a God out there, people are arrogant thinking they really know specifics about it. He probably thought, well, the Bible, that's changed over the ages. It's probably not even what it was originally. It's actually, we found older manuscripts than they based this version on, and it's the same. It hasn't changed like they thought. But of course, he being a man of science was just sterile black and white. And at best, he was an agnostic. At worst, he was just an atheist. He saw enough of disease, and trouble in the world that he wondered if there is a God, he must be doing a terrible job. And then he went to work in that emergency room. Most people that died that he brought back didn't remember anything. A lot of them did, though. And as he ministered, I'll use that word, because that's what God had him doing, he didn't know it, but as he brought people back and took care of them medically, he started to hear similarities in some of the accounts. And this went on for years, and it struck him and challenged his agnosticism slash atheism to where he began to start recording them. You know, that's what men of science do. They start to do research, and they log it, and they record it just like they chart after seeing a patient. He started to write stuff down. Five accounts. Totally unrelated people, didn't know each other. Some of them did have some kind of a Christian background, some very, very shallow Christian background. Others maybe deeply knew the Lord. Some were children, didn't know much about it at all. 
but of course God has such mercy with children. This is what, these are just five of the accounts, and they're not long. One guy, he records what the man said. Suddenly I felt relief from my terrible chest pains. I can't fully express it. I was floating into an area that looked like heaven. It was wonderfully bright with buildings and streets of gold. I saw a figure with long hair and a brilliant white robe. A light radiated all about him. I felt sure that it was Jesus. Another person, totally unrelated. Everything was getting brighter. This is after he died, left his body. I noticed that I was crossing over a beautiful city below. The streets seemed to be made of shining gold and were wonderfully beautiful. I can't describe it. I descended onto one of the streets and people were all around me. They seemed to be in shining clothes with a sort of glow. Another one, totally unrelated. The angel sat me down on a street in a fabulous city of buildings made of glittering gold and silver and beautiful trees. A beautiful light was everywhere, glowing, but not bright enough to make me squint my eyes. Another person, years later, he records, the person said, I saw this beautiful, brilliantly lit city. Fabulous city of buildings reflecting what seemed to be rays like the sun. It was all made of gold or some shiny metal with domes and steeples in beautiful array. And the streets were shining, not quite like marble, but made of something I've never seen before. There were many people all dressed in glowing white robes with radiant faces. Last one that I'll, I'll share with you. He recorded probably hundreds, but this other man said, I was floating over this beautiful city. Looking down, it was the prettiest city I've ever seen. People were there, all in white. The whole sky was lit up, brighter than sunshine. I was about to drift down and walk around in this city when I found myself back in my body, feeling the most terrible shock again as they put the paddles to me to revive my heart. Except for my wife's sake, I wish you had never brought me back. Now, I don't care how, what kind of man of science you are. Scientifically, that speaks. How do you deny all these people that seemingly saw the same city? Hebrews says we've come to the city of the living God, a multitude of angels, spirits of just men made perfect. It's in the Bible. And he, he couldn't run from the truth. He, he became a believer, believe me. He did. He became a believer. In the Bible, people fill in the blanks with notions that they think are reasonable. They fill in information that they're lacking just to make themselves feel more calm and focused. Much easier for people to fill in information than to trust. Trust comes hard to people. And they spend a lot of time in their imagination imagining what must really be going on, what must really be happening in their reality, when in fact the Holy Spirit is there to lead them into all truth. Maurice Rawlings had ideas he'd imagined about the afterlife or human beings or the spirit realm, and then the Holy Spirit walked him into situations that prov provided facts, changed how he felt about it forever. One of the greatest things you can know is that when Jesus tells you, let not your heart be afraid, let not your heart be troubled, he thinks you can do it. You can control your emotions. You can't control them directly. I've, I've been upset and had people say, just calm down. Be at peace. 
And because of what I knew in light of what I was confronted with, it was very hard to be at peace, almost impossible to be at peace. And I didn't really appreciate being told to just calm down, be at peace. But if somebody could change what I knew in light of what I was beholding, my emotions would change. So we don't change our emotions directly. We change our emotions by changing what we know about what we're beholding or by beholding something different, changing our focus. Either one will calm you down. In the Bible, there's a story that, that brings this out so clearly. Let's go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 7 this is the story of Elisha the prophet. There was a terrible battle going on between the Syrians and the people of Israel. They were shut up in Samaria in a city. The walls were shut up. The Syrians had surrounded them, and they were starving inside the city. They couldn't get out to get food. They couldn't get out to get provision. That's what they used to do. They used to put a city under siege and starve the people in the city out until they finally opened the gates, and then they'd rush in. And they would win the victory. And that's what was happening. And, and people were in such a desperate condition. They actually, the story says, they were cannibalizing children. There was a woman that had gone to the king upset because her and her girlfriend had decided they'd eat her son first and, and, and their child next. And after they ate her son, the other one hid their child and didn't keep their part of the deal. Can you imagine that type of desperation? That's the shape they were in. So what happens? Well, Elisha the prophet talked to the king of Israel that was in that city with all the people, and many had already starved, and there were people there, and they were upset with the situation, upset with the king. It was just turmoil. And Elisha says to the king, the Lord showed him, tomorrow there will be cheap food and plenty of it. Lots of food, and a person that actually leaned on the king's arm, which meant he was his right-hand man, chief counselor, said to Elisha, if God opened the windows of heaven, is something like that even possible? Well, God can do anything. So what happened? I'll pick up the story in verse 6. It says here, there were four lepers. I'll give you this background fact. There were four lepers outside the city that was all shut up where people were starving, and they were starving. And they decided to go present themselves to the Syrian army, just the enemies, and just decided, maybe they'll feed us. If they kill us, we're dying here anyway. We might, why sit here till we die? Let's at least present ourselves. Maybe they'll have mercy on us and feed us. So they go to the enemy camp, and it's completely empty. There's donkeys and horses, silver, gold, tents, and food, and not a soul in sight. The Bible tells us what God caused to happen. Verse 6, the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against, this is, this is the plot line they're making up in their head. The king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and of the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight. They left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, they fled for their lives. So the four lepers go into the camp, and there's nobody there. They look into a tent and go into it. There's silver, there's gold, there's tons of food. So they did what hungry people do. They sat down and they ate. And after they were full, they carried off 
some of the silver and the gold. And then he went back later, and they ate again and plundered the tent and carried away some of the silver and gold. And then they got convicted. They was like, this is obviously a day of good news, and we're keeping it all to ourselves. We keep being this selfish, and something terrible is going to befall us. So let's go tell the king's family what's happened. So they go to the, the watchers on the wall, and they, they shout up to him and tell him, you know, we went to the enemy's camp. There's nobody there. Now let's pick up the story. What, how, what was the king's response? Remember, the Holy Ghost has spoken through the prophet saying tomorrow, and that, that was now today, there's going to be plenty of food. Don't worry. God's going to feed you all. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, well, actually, let me start in uh, verse 10. So they went out and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp. Surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king, what does he do? So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they open the door and come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So what did the Syrians do? They heard a noise and filled in all the blanks with a plot line and what they supposed had happened. What did the king do? He heard good news and immediately filled in the blanks with a plot line and imagined what had happened. And the Holy Ghost had already said, Good news is coming. God's going to deliver. So many times, God wants us to believe for something good, and the greatest obstacle the Holy Ghost faces is the plot lines we've inserted where we're missing information. I went through a, a period, I guess we're going back a oh, long time, 2008? I had a physical problem. I had what's called adrenal fatigue. I had gone through a period of intense burnout. I hope you're Pastors have the wisdom not to let this happen to them. I went about 15 years in ministry without a significant break. And when you run out of your natural strength and you're feeling overwhelmed, in my case it was because things were going very good and it was very overwhelming. You start living on adrenaline. And then when you wear out your adrenal system, you reach down for that thing deep down inside to push you through another day, and it's not there. Two things happen. Number one, you find it almost impossible to sleep. Sleep just eludes you, and you'd think being as tired as you are, you'd want to sleep all the time. I was living on two, three hours of sleep. If I could get that, having to take medicine just to get half a night's sleep. The second thing that happens is adrenaline, the adrenal system is what helps you handle stress. I would get stressed out over nothing. And when I did, see, when you have adrenal fatigue, everything is stressful. I was sitting at the Parthenon restaurant when it was there, and I had a menu, and I was trying to decide between their ribeye sandwich and their fried chicken, and I started crying. I couldn't make up my mind. It was too overwhelming to pick chicken or sandwich. You say, well, how did that happen? That, that's the state you get into with adrenal fatigue. I was burned out. They prescribed an 11-week sabbatical for me. My son-in-law pastored the church. It did fine without me. That was a blow to my ego. And, and after 11 weeks, they taught me how to do ministry that they said, we're going to teach you how to do ministry that takes care of you too, not just everyone else. You know, But during that time, 
when everything stressed me, everything seemed overwhelming. And physically, I felt great anxiety over almost everything that normally a person in good condition would brush off and not worry about and not get upset about. I was so just wasted in my adrenal system that everything stressed me. God sent a guy named Kevin to the church right by the side door. You go out to your cars. I was standing there greeting people after a service, and Kevin walks up to me, and he said, well, brother, I, I had a vision of you. And I said, you did? And he said, yeah. And uh, I was praying, and there you were. And he said, you were, you were caught up in this thicket full of thorn bushes all around you. And, and you were real uncomfortable, and you were wanting to move. But every time you moved, every time you tried to do anything, you were stuck with these thorns. And you were just, you were full of anxiety and in anguish, caught up in these thorn bushes. And he said, and God told me to tell you something. And I said, he did? And he said, yeah. God wants you to know the thorns, they're not there. It's like, they sure feel like they're there. They're not there. It was a physical problem in me. It wasn't an actual problem with people in the church stressing me, people in the community stressing me, situations of life stressing me. All those situations were relatively normal. I, in my nervous system and adrenal system, wasn't in good shape. And everything felt like an overwhelming stressor. And that's what the thorns represented. No matter what I did, how I tried to relax, how I tried to distract myself, everything felt like pressure and stress. Everything was overwhelming. The thorns weren't there. I had imagined this intense season of adversity, and it was all a product of my conclusions. The real problem was I had, I had, I had to take care of myself. I needed a break. I needed a long vacation. I needed somebody to teach me how to do ministry. It takes care of me, not just everybody else. That was the problem. The whole world was not out to get me. God had not abandoned me. I just need a little help. I just need a little healing. That's how I learned. King of Israel, oh, they're waiting in a field. They're going to get us. Oh, no, God just, God just threw a barbecue for you, and you're not showing up. It says, it says in Proverbs chapter 20, what is it, 28, verse 1, the righteous are bold as a lion. They're focused. They're bold. They're intentional. The wicked flee when no one's pursuing them. People getting all stressed out, inserting dark plot lines into their life and fearing and running and So I want to share with you today that God's will for you is for the Holy Ghost to help you when you get to those points in your life that feel overwhelming. Hit the pause button and go to God and ask him the question, is a lot of what I'm feeling based on things I think I know that I've kind of inserted? And the Holy Ghost will tell you. The Holy Ghost will help you. The Holy Ghost is in love with you. 
He brings the Father's heart and Jesus' love down into your human earth experience. It's his desire to love you so much. But it starts with you hitting the pause button, letting him speak, taking a break. In my case, listening to a brother that had the word of the Lord to interrupt my negative freight train, get it to stop and really reconsider what I'm thinking. Reconsider what I had convinced myself was a reality. I thank God that that brother was good enough to come along and tell me that an awful lot of what was making me feel so haggard and making me feel so victimized in my life was, was a physical problem and I needed some ministry and to calm down and to get some help physically and to get some, some relief in my soul. Thank God. God sent somebody to talk to me. The Holy Ghost cared enough to see what I was thinking and interrupt it and bring me the truth. God is so much wanting to do that for you today. Not only do we insert plot lines and conclusions in the blank areas where we don't have the facts because it's too hard to trust when we don't know. People do it to you all the time. I, uh, I went to a jail to visit an inmate once, and there was this real kind of crusty lady behind the counter. I walked in, and I, uh, I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Pastor Roger. I've come to see so-and-so. And I was wearing a Christian T-shirt, some kind of upbeat Christian T-shirt. And she was having a bad day, I guess. Or she just had a lot of really negative experiences with churches or Christians or something. I don't know what her backstory was. But she looked at me, and she said, my boyfriend's got a, got a T-shirt, too. And it says, what makes you think you're better than me? And I was like, what? I, I was like, I, I, I don't know what her backstory is. I mean, this, she, she'd been through something. But she must have thought all Christians were just judgmental hypocrites. And I was a pastor, so I was the captain of the hypocrites. You know, and she, she had something to say, and she was going to say it, you know. And I walked away from that experience, and I thought, do I come across that way? How do I feel about myself when I meet somebody lost in the world? And again, the Holy Ghost came in. I, I had myself half convinced there must be something about me that would make somebody feel that. Do I not smile enough? Not warm enough? What is wrong? And God came in, and he brought to mind something I went through as a boy. I, after I'd sought God about it, the Spirit spoke to me and said, no, that's not how you feel about people. She's, she's wounded and she's got a problem. Pray for her. But what you feel is rescued. Have you ever been rescued? Has somebody ever saved your life? I was. I was about 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. I was raised in Park Ridge, Illinois. There's a park there. And it's the fun park in town. It's got two giant swimming pools. The kiddie pool, which is a big pool, goes from about 15 inches deep to about three feet. So you can't drown in that pool unless you're two feet tall. And the other pool's got the high dive and the low dive, and it, it's got 16 feet deep. It's got five feet to 16 feet, and that's where all the fun happens for the older kids. I was not an athletic child growing up. I had some of the worst cardiovascular conditioning you've ever seen in a little boy. I was really isolated. 
as, as I grew up. I spent most of my time in my bedroom watching cartoons. Did, I just wasn't athletic in any way, shape, or form. Well, in order to get promoted from the kiddie pool to the big fun pool, the adult pool, you have to be able to swim the length of the swimming pool down and back without running out of breath, without drowning, without, you know, you had to be able to at least be a good enough swimmer to go down the length of the pool and back without stopping. And I could never do it. I mean, I would get halfway down the pool. I couldn't breathe. My heart would feel heavy. I'd have to stop. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. I was in terrible shape. And I was getting older. I was like 11, and I was already like five foot four. I was a skinny gangly. And I looked too big to be in the kiddie pool. So I, uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over to the adult pool. I'm just going to try to blend in, you know, and just keep a low profile, and hopefully I won't get caught, and I'll just be able to finally graduate to the big people's pool. So I went over there, went through the gate. I wasn't supposed to, but I went into the big pool, and I saw those diving boards, and I thought, oh, my gosh, that is, that's too fun. I got to try that, you know, and they had a high dive, and I thought, I've got to do that. So I climb up the ladder, my skinny little bod, and I go back to the end of the diving thing, and everybody behind me is going, jump, come on, jump, because there's a long line, you know. And I finally was like, I got to jump. I got no choice. So I jumped in, and I tried to jump so I'd be near the edge of the pool so I could swim to the side if I needed to. I jumped and wound up right smack dab in the middle of the pool, and I came up out of the water. I'd swallowed a little. I tried to swim to the side. I, I my I had chest pain. I mean, I was out of breath, and, and the lifeguard, pretty, suntan, 16-year-old, blonde, female lifeguard, sitting in her perch, looking at this kid that appears to be drowning. She jumps out of her perch. They had a big seat with a platform. Jumps into the pool, saves my life. Now, you would think an 11-year-old boy with a suntan teenage girl with blonde hair and a swimming suit wrapping her arms around you would be quite the highlight of my summer. It was not. She, she grabbed me and swimmed and got me to the edge and pushed my butt up over it and got me on the concrete, asked if I was okay, and I said yes. I tried to act like I didn't need her help after all. She wasn't fooled. She chewed me out in front of everybody. My friends, every, the adult pool was crowded and sent me back to the kiddie pool. And, I, and, and God told me, that's how it feels to be rescued, remember? He says, son, calm down. You live your life feeling rescued, mercifully rescued. And I needed to hear that. Because as a young minister, I was very insecure. I didn't know if I was doing a good job. I mean, I was a rookie. I was green. I wasn't like your pastor who had some mentoring before he got here. I was thrown off the pier right out of CFNI. I, had, I didn't even take a pastor class there. I didn't think I could be a pastor. I didn't think I was personable enough. So here I am, walking back to the kiddie pool. I think I, think I headed right into the locker room, changed and went home. I don't think I just had the stomach to stay in the kiddie pool after that. But the Holy Ghost talked to me later, brought that to my remembrance and said, Roger, that's how you really feel about yourself. You feel mercifully rescued and keep that feeling. As long as you feel that way, if somebody hates Christians, it won't be something you did. It won't be your fault. You stay humble and you remember you're mercifully rescued. God has rescued every one of us. 
and will rescue us. How many know a lot of us aren't finished being perfected? We're being changed from glory to glory, conformed into the image of the Son, renewed in the spirit of our mind. Those are all process words. And God loves us while we're in our process. He doesn't love some future perfected version of us. He loves us right now in our mess. That's how the Father feels about us. And he feels it intensely. People with profound experience with him will all testify that when I saw the Lord, I spoke to the Lord, I met the Lord, I couldn't believe the love coming back at me. That's how God feels about you every day. And the Holy Ghost wants to make that real to you. His greatest obstacle is the imaginations that we plug in when we don't know what's going on, when we, we feel like we have to understand everything. Our mind hasn't been humbled enough for us to follow God like a child following a father that knows all. How many ever had a three- or four-year-old child that questioned you incessantly, you know? Yeah, it kind of drives you nuts. You just, just trust me. I'm not going to explain to you why you can't drive the truck. You're three. You know, sometimes we're like that with our father. So many things we don't know, and we're plugging in our plot lines and our scenarios and our missing information, and we're making it up. And that stuff becomes the substance of what we're feeling. Your feelings are a combination of what you're confronted with or beholding and what you know about it. The Holy Ghost wants to give you accurate information or a piece so you can trust. That's what he wants to do. And I have learned that my mind needs to be humbled, especially at stress points. That's one reason God gave us to each other. Some of us go through difficult seasons. Thank God for our brothers and our sisters and those that walk by our side. God's deposited in them a little counsel that we need. And if we're humble and we let our brethren help us, we're going to get all the way to the finish line. The Father's going to make sure we do. But we've got to stop, hit the pause button, and talk to God about what we're thinking and let the Holy Ghost show us. And we've inserted a lot of our ideas where the truth needs to be. He's the spirit of truth. If, the, if you ever feel like the Holy Spirit isn't talking to you anymore, could be that he can't talk to you about the stuff you've made up because it's not the truth. He's the spirit of the truth. You've got to give up some of your conclusions so that he can give you some insight and have a real conversation with you based on facts. It's humbling, isn't it? God's going to get us to the finish line. He is. Hallelujah. I'm going to let your pastor come now and let him pray with you and call you to some response with this. I hope this blessed you. It did me a lot of good when I finally got it. And God's perfecting everything that concerns me and working with me every day. Thank you so much, Pastor Welty. Thank you. Would you guys pray with me now? Father, we thank you today that you are here in this place. We ask that you would just surround us with your spirit, that you would be uh, strong inside of us right now, Lord. If you're here today and you are ready to make a decision and follow after Jesus, maybe it's for the first time, uh, I just want to simply allow you to raise your hand in just a few moments. I'll, I'll uh, count to three and you can just raise your hand up. If you're here today and you want that and you just, you know you're ready for it, just simply slip your hand up on three. One, two, three. Thank you. I see that. Thank you. Thank you. And would everyone just pray with me as a sign of confession of your faith to Jesus today? Jesus, I give you my life. 
I surrender everything to you. Would you come in and take over? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Victory Faith, would you celebrate with everyone today who raised their hand?